need a copy of a Bible, there should be one in a chair back in front of you, and you can find 1 Kings chapter 17 on page 299 in the chair back Bible. This morning we're continuing to walk through the story of Elijah. And so the title of the message today is A Journey of Faith. Uh, it's the second part of what we started last week. And last week uh, we saw how God was at work in Elijah's life. This week we see God's power on display. And so as we begin to look into the text of chapter 17, if you recall, last week we covered uh, only verse 1, but this week we're going to walk from verses 2 through 24, but we won't give as much time to each verse as we gave to verse 1 last week, I assure you. Uh, well, if you've found your place in First Kings chapter 17, would you let it be known by saying amen? <clears throat> Before I read... Let us pray. Our Father, as we come to this time in our worship, we have participated through singing your praise, and now we participate as listeners, as hearers of your word. So let us be like James exhorts us in the New Testament, to be both hearers and doers of your word. God, would you speak to us by your spirit? Would you illumine our minds to understand the truth of your word? Would you anoint my lips, anoint our ears to speak and to hear your word? And Father, would you captivate our minds this morning? Would you break down the defenses that we have built up against you? And would you cause us to trust in you with great dependence? Lord, teach us what it looks like to cast all of our cares upon you and to learn from you and to walk with you. Father, I pray that as we do this, you would speak into our lives. Now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you weren't here with us last week, many of you know, but maybe you don't, you can go online and you can find a copy of last week's message if you kind of feel a little bit lost in the beginning, but I'm going to try to, uh, to bridge the gap for you and help us to understand uh, what was happening last week as quickly and succinctly as possible. Last week we saw how one man, Elijah, was being used by God. Elijah was a man that went to the king of the nation of Israel and spoke to him and challenged him right there exactly where he was in the issue that he had led God's people into. And that issue was he had led God's people to worship a false god named Baal. This was the god of storm. He was the god of fertility and was, uh, was, was worshipped so that the crops would flourish. Elijah confronted King Ahab in the name of Yahweh, the true and living God of Israel, in verse 1, saying, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So Elijah goes to King Ahab and pronounces to King Ahab what God has already given to Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. He's already given Moses this, uh, this condition for them living in the land of promise. And that condition was, when you get in the land of promise, be careful that you continue to worship me. You don't begin worshiping false gods and turn your heart away from me. 
So we said last week that the issue Elijah is confronting is this issue of relativism. That there's more than one way to come to God. And so this is the cultural issue that he's he's coming up against. And so this week, what I want us to see is that God is demonstrating to Elijah and to us why he is far superior to this false God named Baal. And so we see this morning, I, I want us to see that God is powerful over all nations. And he's able to work to grow our faith and to bring others to salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, practically, that fleshes out like this. You, I, each of us should embrace God's work in our lives to grow in our faith and to proclaim the hope of Christ's resurrection. That's the goal of our faith. These are the two things that God is at work doing in every... I'm having fits with this thing this morning. Excuse me. Maybe that'll work. So here are the two goals that God is, God is consistently working. Here are the two things that God is consistently doing in each of our lives as believers in Christ. Number one, God is consistently working to grow our faith. That is, day in and day out, God is at work strengthening the believer, challenging us in our lives, causing us and calling us to grow in our faith. But secondly, the other thing that God is simultaneously at work doing through each of his children is he is at work speaking into the lives of others. He is impacting others for the sake of his kingdom. And these are, are two uh, axles, if you will, on the tandem axles running at the same time and in the same direction. This is what God is doing through each and every one of his children. And so last week, our main point was to see Elijah's courageous obedience to God. This week, our main point is to see Elijah's growth and testing. We see this in verses 2 through 24. So what follows in chapter 17 is a challenge to Elijah's faith. It's true that we often experience the greatest seasons of growth in faith during our most challenging times of life. Suffering and growth go hand in hand. And I think this speaks to the human condition. You see, the brokenness of our humanity is reflected in our suffering. And I don't have an intention this morning of laying out a a, a theology of suffering for you, but I think that the issue of suffering, be it light or heavy, be it momentary or be it lingering, points us beyond our own ability to cope and points us to our need for God. That is to say that ultimately our suffering functions like a flashing arrow in the dark of night, pointing us, rather upward, pointing us to cast ourselves on God's mercy. C.S. Lewis, who said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but shouts to us in our suffering. To the degree that Elijah's suffering, I, I really can't say. But he's certainly being tested. And this provides occasion for his growth. And so I think this morning we'll see in this text that there's a correlation between the very specific way Elijah challenged the culture 
false worship of, of Baal and the way that God is now going to teach Elijah how he is far superior to Baal. And so first we look at 1 Kings chapter 17 verses 2 through 7 to see that Yahweh is powerful to answer prayer. Now, let me give you one more caveat before I read verses 2 through 7. The word Yahweh, you'll notice in the outline, this is God's covenant name. The covenant name that God gives to his people to show that he is a a faithful God. And we see that evidence throughout the pages of the Old Testament when the word Lord is in all caps. This is speaking of God's covenant name. And one more reminder, the name for Elijah, L-I-Jah, it means my God is Yahweh. So his very name speaks to this covenant God as the one true living God. And so he's confronting the culture, saying that there's not there aren't multiple ways. There aren't multiple gods to worship. There is one true God and he's living. And so in verse one, he said, before this God is the one whom I stand and I'm proclaiming this to you. And so verses two through twenty four now shows us how he's demonstrating that God is superior. Yahweh is superior to Baal. So verses two through seven, follow along as I read. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kerith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kerith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Yahweh, God, is powerful to answer prayer. He is not mute. God is different than any other God. He lives, he acts, he responds to the needs of his people. We know this manifestly through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God, the Son, stepped down out of heaven and took upon the flesh of man, and he became like us, identifying as one of us, as, as in our humanity. And then he bore the sins of man upon himself when he went to the cross and died so that we might have the righteousness of Christ. And so we learn here in verses 2 through 7 that God powerfully provides. He provides protection for Elijah. Look in verse 3. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kerith. Now Ahab has searched the land far and wide after, uh, after Elijah disappears. Chapter 18, verse 10 tells us, uh, there's, an, there's a dialogue between Ahab's servant Obadiah and Elijah. And in verse 10, Obadiah says, As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord, that is Ahab, has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. You see, Ahab had searched everywhere trying to find Elijah. But as he searched, he was unable to find him. That's because God is providing protection. He's hiding Elijah for his protection and God also provides not only for his protection but he provides from unexpected sources God provides nourishment for Elijah you see that in verses four through six Elijah must learn true and complete dependence on the Lord 
He tells him, you're going to drink from the brook and the ravens are going to feed you in the morning and in the evening. Look at verse 6. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. You see, God's faithful. He's faithful to his people. His name, his covenant name, speaks of his faithfulness. He's a covenant-keeping God. That's important for us to remember as we round out the message this morning. And he's at work growing Elijah's faith. As Elijah is learning to trust and depend upon God, I want you to notice what happens in verse 7. Verse 7 says that the brook dried up. And so we find Elijah alone by the Kerith, that brook. And now he's there at this dried up stream. But he isn't alone. God hasn't abandoned him. God is with him. And I want to encourage you just briefly for a moment. If, if that's happened to you, or, or maybe it's even happening now to you, that you feel like you don't know where God is. Your, uh, your brook has dried up. Your kareet has, has dried up. God has brought you to a place, and you, you don't understand why he's brought you to that place. If that's you, I want you to know that you're not alone. I mean, even Jesus himself, Self was led out into the wilderness for 40 days and nights to be tempted. Moses, in his ministry, before he came to lead the children of Israel in the Exodus, he spent 40 years in Midian before he was prepared and ready to lead God's people. David, King David, he was in the desert hiding and in surrounding nations, hiding from King Saul before he ever became king, even after he was anointed by Samuel to be the king. Believer, recognize this, that God orchestrates these Kirith points, so to speak, for our good and for his glory. Know that he hasn't abandoned you. Know that he's at work in the midst of all of these circumstances and situations that you find yourself going through, preparing you for his work. And I think oftentimes the temptation that we face today is to reject these moments and ask God why he's doing this instead of, God, what are you trying to teach me in the midst of doing this, right? I mean, if I were Elijah, I'm following God, the brook dries up, I'd probably be asking God, all right, God, you led me here. I don't understand what's going on. My source of water is dried up. Why, God? Why have you brought me here and then dried up my source of water? You ever had that kind of experience? You knew that God had unmistakably led you in a particular way into a particular place only to find and experience that the brook had dried up. Friend, I want you to hear something. God is never, he is never inactive in your life. When Elijah, when Elijah gets there and he realizes the brook has dried up, it's proved something about God's faithfulness. It's proved that God is faithful to answer his prayer. Look at verse 7. After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Last week, we saw how Elijah had been praying. Even James in chapter 5 says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed. He prayed fervently that it wouldn't rain, and for three years and six months, it didn't rain, right? And then he prayed again, and God brought the rain. You see, this was an answer to Elijah's prayer. And the point is, When you and I pray things like, Lord, teach me to trust you. Lord, increase my faith. Lord, 
teach me patience. And it seems like the brook dries up. Don't miss it. Don't miss what God is doing. Don't miss the fact that God is really at work. We start looking around at others, surfing social media, seeing how good so-and-so has it or how so-and-so has it all together, and we grow jealous, we grow envious, we grow frustrated, we even grow depressed. Don't do that. Trust in God. The reality is that they're probably lying anyway on social media, right? It's a false reality. Too often, church, we stop short of learning what God is teaching us and the ways that God is stretching us because we give up. In the midst of our struggles with sin, we experience these temporary victories and we sense the sweetness of God's presence. We gain a new clarity by which to discern the Holy Spirit. You, you've been there. I know that you've under, you understand what I'm talking about. And then, and then all of a sudden, what happens? We stop short of really accomplishing the victory in Christ and we, we stop trusting in God and we start looking to ourselves. You see, our prayer also needs to be for the Lord to give us endurance, to walk in godliness and in holiness. So Elijah endures for three and a half years. His faith is tested. Now, not, not there by the Kirith. There are stages along the journey. But, but Elijah's enduring. He's going through this period of growth and testing for three, three and a half years. And there's a progression here in verses 2 through 7. Elijah's on his own. He's learning how God answers prayer and how God provides. He's learning that God is powerful and able to accomplish what he says he will accomplish. He stops the rain. And so in essence, we could say, Baal, God of storm, where are you now? You can't bring the rain. You can't provide because you're dead. He's not alive like Yahweh. And this is what, this is what Elijah is seeing in the midst of it. And such is the case with every other false god and false religion and pseudo-religious pursuit. You will not find satisfaction outside of Jesus Christ. No one will. And that speaks to the brokenness of our humanity. So it doesn't matter what a person is trapped in or caught in or what type of worship they are engaged in. Hear this and hear it loud and clear. The brokenness of humanity creates this hole within man. There is a sin problem. And the answer to the sin problem is to share the hope and the message of Jesus Christ who can redeem us and reform us and transform our hearts and our minds. And the power of God is more powerful than any other false God, any other false way, more powerful than any other dead God from Muhammad to Buddha to Gandhi to Mormonism to Jehovah's Witnesses to Church of Scientology. Listen, don't fall thinking that they've got something over the power of God. Because they don't. God is all-powerful. He's above all. He's the God of every nation, every tongue, every tribe. And so let us, church, cry out to God in prayer and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to our entertainment-driven, pleasure-seeking, relativistic culture today. Why? Because we know well the path that hedonistic living takes us down. It's like sin, where sin gains a foothold, and it promises satisfaction, but it's only temporary. 
And all it does is plunges the sinner deeper and further and further down into depravity and destruction and guilt and shame and depression. And the list can go on and on. And so we, we are to declare and proclaim this gospel message. The answer is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer is to aim for the heart of the unrepentant sinner. We do this as we proclaim Jesus Christ. Because hear me out, unless there's a reformation of the heart, then there will not ever be a reformation of the land in which we are proclaiming and in the culture that we are challenging. So we aim for the heart as Elijah did. Secondly, I want you to see this morning that Yahweh is powerful over all nations. We see this in verses 8 through 16. We see that he has authority. All right, look at verse 8. Follow along with me as I read in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in the vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. God is powerful over all nations. He has authority over all peoples. All nations includes both land and people, right? God commands Elijah, get this, to go to Zarephath of Sidon. Now, if you don't remember Zarephath, it's, it's the land where um, Jezebel has come from. The one that has led God's people and led King Ahab into false worship. This is the territory of the worshipers of Baal. But God is teaching Elijah that his power is not confined to the territory of Israel alone, but that he's the God of all peoples. And so God demonstrates his absolute authority over the nations, whether they acknowledge him or not. This, is, this means that God is ruler over every nation, over every person of creation. Believer, know this and be bold in following Christ. Live, speak, and act as one who is an ambassador for Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. This is God at work in and through the church, the believer. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20 tells us that we're to be ambassadors for Christ. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, 
We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the message that we, the church, are proclaiming to a world. This is not hate speech, as some would label it. No, this is reaching for the heart. This is showing care and love and compassion and desire to see others come to faith in Christ. This is speaking the truth of God's word into the lives of others. Last week, Geronda introduced me to some of her friends, a missionary couple from Pattaya, Thailand. Their names are the Yorks. They've started a Bible distribution ministry called Light for Asia. They're reaching seven different countries from Pattaya. <clears throat> As I spoke with Joseph, I could see that he and his wife both had a great passion for being the light of the gospel to the nations from Pattaya. Most of us are unaware, though, of Pattaya, Thailand. It's one of the darkest cities on the face of the globe. It's a city that's infested with brothels and prostitution and human trafficking. It might be called the epicenter of the human trafficking world. Joseph told me about a a band named Blue Tree, and there was a song that they wrote while they were there. And the song they wrote (coughs) was a song while they were ministering there in the city, and the name of the song was God of This City. We know this song because of Chris Tomlin, but I want you to hear the background story as you listen to this short video. We are from a church in Belfast. We get asked by our missions pastors in the church, uh, do you want to go to Thailand? And our guys being our guys are like, yeah, no hassle. We're in. Padia is probably the most openly and in-your-face sex tourist capital whatever you want to call it, of the planet. So we ended up playing in a brothel. And via someone who knew someone who knew someone else or whatever it was, we ended up playing in a bar called the Climax Bar. And the deal was that we, we, had, we had to bring a whole load of Christians with us who would all buy Coca-Cola. And we would have the ability to play a two-hour set in the middle of this bar. And I can remember looking out over my left shoulder and seeing just, I don't know whether or not it was British tourists or whatever, but I can remember just looking out. And here they are in the middle of the street, and they're just hearing these Jesus songs blasting out. And uh, there's just a pile of them just standing outside the door. And they were just looking, and I, I would love to know what's going on in their heads. You know, just going, what the heck are these guys singing Jesus songs for in the middle of this street? And I just began to sing out what I believed God was saying over that city. I just began to say that, you know, God is God of this city. He's the king of these people. He's the Lord of this nation. And they don't know that. They don't know that. And uh, and the song was born. The song moved from... It came out of this just this loop that started to play, a real minor downbeat loop. And uh, and it just majored up into this like anthem of the night that just said, greater things have yet to come and greater things have still to be done in this city. Greater things have yet to come and Really, probably the biggest moment in my life that changed my life was the moment that that God of the City was actually written. That point when that song was formulated. What is the church on a global scale doing to actually 
combat things that exist in our planet that are completely wrong, whether it's child soldiers, prostitution in your own city, homeless in your own city, anything what's going on, what is the church doing? We should be the pioneers. We need to understand that we have an authority, that we have an authority that comes from Christ, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, legend every single one of us. And that we actually need to have an attitude of going out and serving the world just with love, you know, and actually living out the Great Commission. Elijah had to learn this truth about God, that he wasn't just the God of Israel. He was the God of all nations. He was the God of every city, of every man, woman, boy, and girl. This is a lesson that we need to be mindful of, church. This is a truth that we need to remember as we seek to follow God, as we seek to walk with him. God has authority over all peoples, over all nations, over everyone in here this morning. And what we see God at work doing is he's sustaining Elijah from the most unlikely source through, through first through ravens and then through a Gentile widow. So God says to Elijah, here's what I've done. I've taken the most disadvantaged of society and the most impoverished, and I'm going to use her to sustain you. This is what's happening in verses 11 through 15, and it's through Elijah's obedience and the widow's submission to God that her faith begins to grow. She was hopeless in verse 12. She said, I'm gathering sticks. I'm going to make our last meal. Me and my son are going to eat, and then we're going to die. But with God, she became hopeful. Through God's servant, she became hopeful. You see, God was teaching Elijah and the widow about his sovereignty over all nations. They learn together that he's able to provide, even in the midst of famine, for those who are trusting in him. And just as God demonstrated his power over the land with famine and his authority over Baal's territory, he also demonstrated his grace toward a Gentile widow and his prophet by miraculously providing and sustaining for their needs. You know what else he does? He reveals Baal's utter powerlessness to provide what's needed for life. You see, God's not bound by any false god, and his plans can't be thwarted by a rogue king or a wayward nation. God tells Elijah in chapter 19, verse 18, that there are still 7,000 in Israel who that haven't bowed their knee to Baal and haven't kissed the statue of Baal. Elijah's learning this truth, that God cares for Gentile widows as well as the nation of Israel. Believer, hear me, God cares for all nations. He cares for all people. That's why Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, that he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers, to our family members, to widows and orphans from every nation, from our nation to every nation, God cares and desires that we would proclaim the hope and the message of the gospel of Christ. Like Elijah, God will use us while he simultaneously is at work in us, teaching us. So my challenge, church, to us is that we would be faithful to speak God's word. He's the God of this city. 
He's the God of our community. He's the God of this state and of this nation and of every nation. And we must live and act and speak by his authority. We must minister in the name of Christ for the sake of Christ, for the glory of God. And so we do that, whether that's through your participation in a, a parent's night out um, ministry to, uh, to families who are fostering or adopting, or whether that's your involvement in ESL, reaching the nations, or, or whatever other area, whether you're going with us to Uganda or in the future will go with us to Uganda, there are different ways that God has called each of us to engage. But as a church, as, a, as one unified body in faith, it is our goal and our desire and our mission to live out this commission that God has called us to. So, friend, let us cry out to Christ that we might be vessels used and spent for God's glory. The last point that we see this morning is that Yahweh is powerful over death. Let me just narrate quickly verses 17 through 24. In verses 17 through 24, it says that Elijah was there living with the widow and with her son, And an illness came upon the boy, and it brought him to death. And the widow cried out to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. And so Elijah was grieved over this, even perplexed by it in verse 20. And he said, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And so he takes the son into his arms and he goes up into his room, lays him on his own bed and then proceeds to fall on or lay on top of him three different times and then cries out or prays to the Lord. Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And Elijah. Prayed, God heard his prayer, answered his prayer and revived the life of this little boy. And so he carries him down, gives him to his mother and says, here's your son. He lives The mother responds, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. When I got to this passage in the text, I thought, Lord, why in the world is this part included in this story, in this narrative? And I think there are two reasons, two reasons I came up with, but there are certainly more. But here are at least two reasons that are foundational for why this is included here in the story. Number one, it confronts Baal's impotent power. Baal was thought to possess resurrection power since every year the old crop died and the new crop would come to life. He was a god of storm and fertility. And so here's what happens. God miraculously displays his awesome power over death, but over the death of humanity. There's no one in the history of the world who possesses this kind of power and authority. And so God demonstrates his authority even over death. The child was dead, it tells us in verse 20, 21, and Elijah prayed, and his life came back into, in, in, into him again. Notice, notice this was a powerful moment in Elijah's life as well. Because he was puzzled in verse 20 by all that God was doing, but by faith he called on God, he said, Oh, Yahweh, my God, and in verse 22, Oh, Lord, my God, 21, Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and in verse 22, he revived the child. Now the widow responds to her son's death. She immediately has guilt. She says, my sin has brought this about. There was an awareness of her sin, and she she jumped to the conclusion that sin and suffering were directly connected in her life. But I want you to know that this isn't always the case. 
Jesus confronted this very line of reasoning in ministering to his disciples in John chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. There was a man that had born blind, been born blind. And Jesus and his disciples are walking by, and his disciples said, they asked him a question. They said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, this testing was actually for her good and for God's glory. And this leads us to the second reason that this story is included in the narrative. And it's that it points us forward to Yahweh's covenant faithfulness through Jesus Christ. It points us forward to see that God is a covenant God, and it points us to look to the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the hope of the gospel of Christ, that he's able to bring about resurrection to eternal life for all who put their faith and trust in him. And just like the Gentile widow's faith, takes root when she encounters the resurrection power of God so that her son is raised, so it is the case for us today. In verse 24, the woman says, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. You see, our journey of faith begins with an awareness of confession of our sin. And it results in our faith being placed in God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ became man. He suffered. He died. And he rose again from the grave to pay our death penalty because of sin. Listen to what Ephesians 2 says about us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Verse 3. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then verse 8. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved. Through faith and this not of yourselves, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's a gift of God. Jesus himself made a bold claim in John chapter 11, verse 25, when he was at Lazarus's tomb. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You see, in this Elijah account in chapter 17, God is teaching his servant Elijah. And he's bringing faith to reality in the life of a widow. He's teaching his servant Elijah that he is powerful. He is the only true living God who is powerful and able to bring life. So not only is it true that he's the God who possesses power to overcome death, he's the God who possesses power to bring about resurrection life. Not even death can defeat God. So this morning, whether you're like the Gentile widow who comes to faith for the first time, or you're like Elijah, the one whom God is working through, Know that God is active in our lives. Know that he is working to grow our faith in him. And know that in the midst of our growth, we might have these moments of suffering, but, but let us cast our cares upon God. Let us 
cry out to God. Let us walk in endurance and holiness because God hasn't abandoned us. He's never inactive in our lives. He possesses all authority and he desires to work in our lives and to grow us in our faith. You see, God's powerful over all nations and he's always at work to grow our faith and to bring others to salvation through Jesus Christ. This morning, maybe for you, believer, there's a grief moment that you've been walking through and you just you need to call out to God and cry out to Him in dependence and trust upon Him. Maybe you need to spend time in prayer. As your sense, you, you, maybe you felt abandoned and you need to cry out to God and say, God, teach me, lead me, give me endurance in the midst of this in the midst of this season, in the midst of this suffering. Or for you, maybe this morning, you've never come to a place in your life where you have verbally said, God, I'm a sinner. And I realize that I've offended your holiness. And I confess my sin before you. And I surrender my life to you. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. If that's where you're at, I want you to know that Jesus is ready and willing to receive you. If he's calling you this morning, do not deny. Do not deny him. Submit and surrender your life to him. Confess your sin, profess faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and know that he will forgive you of your sin. He will come into your life and he will lead you and he will be Lord over your life when you surrender to him. I want to pray this morning and I want to invite you to respond. If you have questions about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm going to be down front and you're welcome to come up and speak with me. If you want to surrender this morning, surrender your life to Christ for the very first time. If that's where you're at, you can pray right there where you're at in your seat. You can say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Lord, I've wronged you. Come into my life. I surrender to you. I want to follow you. It's confession of sin and placing your trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe maybe you need to just surrender some things in your own personal life and journey with Christ as you're growing. Maybe there's some things you need to let go of. Whatever is the case, I want to invite you this morning to respond as the Lord leads you. Pray with me, and then you respond. Father, give us strength this morning to let go of the things that would hinder us in our walk with you, that would hinder us from experiencing your goodness and your grace toward us. Lord, I pray that you would make the hope of the gospel, the power of resurrection to life clear in our hearts and our minds so that we would understand and even be able to share this hope with others. God, would you speak, continue to work in our lives this morning, continue to direct us, to shape us, to mold us into the image of Christ our Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?